the journey to living a meaningful life can feel hopeless, like riding a train through the wilderness at night. But if there were an autopilot track that guaranteed a happy life of purpose, would you take it? And would this solve that nagging, what am I supposed to do, riddle? Welcome to season one, episode one of the Evolve Faster podcast. I'm Scott Ely. All aboard the experience machine. Destination unknown. On the train platform en route to class, Jonathan felt a ringing in his ear after his father hung up. In a mobile world, the jarring sound of a phone being slammed down on you was an experience going extinct. After two years, Jonathan had decided to change his major again. His father was furious and gave him an ultimatum. Jonathan either continued in his current major or his funding was cut off, all of it, living expenses as well. His dad would be calling back tonight for an answer. There was no reasoning that would convince him that this switch to a major his dad called useless was a good idea. But for Jonathan, this transition was something much more. The problem was he knew he could only continue if his father backed him up financially. Fearful risk or safe sorrow, those were Jonathan's choices as he saw them. If he was being honest with himself, he wasn't eager to take either path. He felt stuck in one of those rock hard place scenarios where even a third uncomfortable option perhaps like a cold stone slab, would be welcome. We all want to make decisions that will hopefully lead us to an understanding of what we're supposed to do in this world, don't we? It was the start of his second year in college when all the big life questions started to hit him. The classics, why am I here? And what am I supposed to do to be happy? Those were just some of the questions he'd asked the train window while commuting somewhere. The classic philosopher's pose, as he pondered on life while aimlessly looking out the window. He remembered someone once said that the window is life's greatest teacher. Jonathan wondered if that old wisdom had something to do with the fact that windows are transparent. He simply had questions, and the more questions he had, the more he felt lost. He was interested in the big questions of life, but plagued by the realities of it. He'd sometimes observe pigeons resting on the wires from his apartment, and he was amazed by their ability to do nothing. There he was, a person who couldn't spend more than 10 seconds without thinking, while at the same time, the pigeons seemed to be more zen than he could ever hope to be. They didn't give a crap about anything. They just crapped on unlucky people passing by, who were probably so wrapped up in their own thoughts like Jonathan was right now that they didn't even notice. More importantly, they freely moved from one place to another, seemingly never doubting a single decision. It looked to Jonathan as though nature simply autopiloted them towards what was best for them. There was no wondering if changing major, relationship, job, place of living, or any other decision was the best thing to do. It would seem that for them, experience itself 
was the most meaningful experience. And Jonathan, he was left wondering if the hunch he had yesterday was a stroke of his own genius, divine intervention, or maybe he was just hungry. Like any young Westerner, pondering about life brought Jonathan to reading about Buddhism. In it, he found what he called half answers. Answers that cleared up one thing, but then just brought more questions. On one hand, he thought of Buddhism as a rather pessimistic philosophy of life, as it insisted that happiness is unattainable. But on the other, it was certainly also optimistic as it maintained that true happiness is humanly possible, but only if you saw things as they were. This was one of those thoughts that got Jonathan excited at first because he felt he was onto something. But the more he thought about it, the more confused he'd get. He didn't know how to relinquish his desires if his desire was to not have desires in the first place. If nothing else, life seemed to be one big misunderstanding between Mama Nature, Papa Universe, and everyone else. He tried to change the subject in his mind, away from his impending ultimatum from his father, by reading an article he'd saved on his phone about the universe potentially being conscious. His brow furrowed, and he said aloud on the train, I'm overthinking it again. But he did also laugh then, because the article made him recall the famous Simpsons opening scene, where the camera zooms out, shows Earth, then the Milky Way, a cluster of galaxies, and it finally zooms more and more until it takes a full circle to show Homer's brain and his bald head. The universe is nothing more than Homer's brain. Now that would be a real plot twist to this mystery we call life. The author mentioned panpsychism as a very old theory about the nature of the universe that had only recently been getting real attention in scientific circles. According to the theory, consciousness is universal as nothing can exist without something being aware of it. It's like the old saying, if the tree falls and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? Jonathan always answered that one by saying that yes, in fact, it did, and it was the same as the sound of one hand clapping. Panpsychism and all these Buddhist-themed expressions did just sound like more philosophical theorizing until you include the weirdness of quantum mechanics. Physicists have measured that particles don't have a definite shape or rest in one particular location until they are observed or experienced by someone or something. Jonathan let a hopeless smile decorate his face because it seemed like nothing today could be taken seriously until you include quantum physics into the story. And although he found this theory interesting, in the end, it didn't bring him any closer to figuring out why he is here or what he's supposed to do. Is there a deeper meaning to our existence or are we just dust in the wind? Jonathan laughed again, this time at his own unplanned mental wording because he actually hated that damn song. Who knows? Maybe the actual problem was the fear of accepting that there wasn't a higher meaning to our existence. Jonathan would get shivers just thinking about it. He'd also shiver when realizing that instead of having fun 
and enjoying his young life, he had an existential crisis in his 20s. Man, pigeons really were lucky. The thought also reminded him of some research he'd read about pigeons being taught to discern high-quality art and choose the most attractive people when given options. So they had great taste too? How did they get all the good cards? He snapped himself out of his self-imposed distractions and turned off his phone. He needed to decide what to do, but there wasn't much time to even think as he was heading to class now. But that reminded him that it was Thursday, which meant that his philosophy professor, Mr. June, was holding office hours today after class. Besides sharing a name with a month, Mr. June was a middle-aged, open-minded man who always seemed up for a talk, if you could handle a few academic references. Jonathan saw his issue as a sort of philosophical conundrum anyway, so perhaps this was what he needed. So whether it was serendipity or dumb luck that the office hours fell today, during his final key decision hours, Jonathan planned to be the first person at his door. Jonathan shook Mr. June's hand as he entered his office, and he quickly caught him up on his situation. Then he said, So, Mr. June, I have that Sartre quote pinned up behind my desk that reads, Everything has been figured out except how to live. I'd say that quote sums up where my head's at right now. I'm not depressed or anything, but I guess I'm just having a bit of an existential crisis about what I'm supposed to do every day. I think switching majors might help, at least to a small extent. But after a day of thinking, the only conclusion I came to is that even the damn pigeons seem to understand the point of life more than I do. Am I going crazy? Mr. June smiled and said, Yes, animals do seem to have it figured out, don't they? And it's funny you mention that particular quote. Did you know that this quote Although it sounds rather Sartrean, he actually never said it in any of his work. It's just something someone decided to stick on his name, and it became one of his most prominent quotes. As Jonathan took a seat, he seemed a bit disappointed. Well, I guess I have to cross out his name and write unknown on the sign instead. But it really doesn't matter if he said it or not. I agree with what it means regardless if it was Sartre or some drunk at a party who said it. Not that it matters, but it's possible that much of Sartre's work was also, in fact, written by a drunk. He was both a challenged and challenging guy who practically turned his body into a drug and alcohol depot. He actually thought giant crabs were chasing him around. Mr. June laughed and then continued. But the Sartre-like impression this misquote creates is not entirely mistaken. Namely, what Sartre did say in his famous existentialism is a humanism is that you effectively have a practical debt you owe to the world to be your highest self. And internally, you will feel a gap between who you could be and the life you're currently living. You simply have to keep fighting with yourself until you know you're on that path. Finally, and here's the kicker, you will never actually reach it because it is this struggle itself, showing up every day to battle it, 
that answers the what am I supposed to do question. So he was saying that the meaning of life is life itself, Jonathan asked. Mr. June gave it a thought, then answered. Although Sartre's work is philosophy, I think there's plenty of it that relates to psychology as well. And although your question might make sense, Sartre focused more on the active part of our brain, meaning it's the intense struggle that gives meaning, contrary to passivity and doing nothing. Jonathan got that feeling again of being onto something that will most likely just lead to more questions. But that's what confuses me, Mr. June. If the struggle itself is the meaning of life, then wouldn't that mean we need to desire something to fight for it? You don't struggle with charming a woman because you're enjoying the struggle. You're struggling because you desire her. But on the other hand, Buddhism states that to achieve Zen, we need to relinquish ourselves from our desires. So what is it? Is the meaning of life to struggle or not to struggle? Mr. June answered, as you probably realize by now, Jonathan, it's a bit complicated. But Buddhism and existentialists like Sartre have more in common than you might think. As I've said, we'll probably never reach that perfection we try so hard to achieve. What Sartre meant is that we need to realize although we have desires, the significant ones we'll never actually realize. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the fight and try to meet a lovely girl or two. If we don't have desires that create the possibility to either achieve or fail, then really, what's the point of anything? So one way to read this is that the real problem is not what we are doing, but how we're doing it. Sometimes you think it would be easy to improve your life and make it perfect if there wasn't just for that one thing. You just don't have enough money. You just don't have enough time. You still haven't met that one special person and so on. So just for a second, it may seem that the problem about how to make your life better does not have to do with you, but rather one or two external conditions that are messing with your life. But is it so? Jonathan answered, for me, it feels like it is. It seems like my lack of knowledge makes me feel confused. And you think I have more answers than you, Jonathan? I'm not some omnipotent force that will give you all the answers. And if I were, don't you think I'd choose a more representative and godlike body than this one? Mr. June laughed as he scratched his half-bald head. All I can do is help you decide if there are better questions you could be asking. Jonathan, let's try another tactic to see if a thought experiment might help you. I want you to imagine you had the power to somehow program your life exactly to your liking. Would you do it? This looks like a super easy way to solve all of our existential problems. You just program your future exactly how you want it to be and then sit back and enjoy. Besides the programming, there would be zero struggles for you. However, when you cash in this scenario, it turns out that it isn't as tempting as it first appears to be. More specifically, Robert Nozick in his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, came up with an interesting thought experiment that might help you assess this scenario. I'll read it to you how Nozick explained the experiment. Let me just find the book here. Mr. June searched his shelves for a minute and finally 
grabbed the book. Here we go, he said, as he opened to a page that was heavily dog-eared and started reading. Suppose there was an experience machine that would give you any experience you desired. Super-duper neuropsychologists could stimulate your brain so that you would feel as if you were writing a great novel, making a friend, or reading an interesting book. All the time, you'd be floating in a tank with electrodes attached to your brain. Should you plug into this machine for life, pre-programming your life's experiences? Of course, while in the tank, you won't know that you're in there. You'll think it's all happening. Others can also plug in to have the experiences they want, so there's no need to stay unplugged to serve them. So, would you plug in? Jonathan seemed confused. Wait, so a famous philosopher like Nozick used the word super-duper in this serious work? Mr. June laughed. Well, it is a super-duper serious work. And why not? Do you think a person needs to be 100% serious to be wise? Don't tell me you believe the number of complicated words is the measure of someone's wisdom. Well, no, I guess I was just surprised. Anyway, let me answer your question. Although it does kind of sound like what I've been asking for, I'm not sure I'd want the answers to come this way either. Something about it doesn't seem quite right. Mr. June answered, and Nozick would agree with you, despite the fact that you're not a fan of the way he words things. Nozick thinks that most people would not plug in, for there are other things that matter to them in addition to their experiences. More specifically, according to Nozick, there seem to be a couple important reasons for not plugging in. First, people want to do certain things and not just have the experience of doing them. The second reason for not plugging in is that people want to be a particular sort of person and not just an indeterminate blob floating in a tank. Think about it. How can we know anything about the person floating in the tank? She programmed her own experiences exactly to her liking. Everything is ideal, and in a way, nothing is real. Nozick described it as being close to suicide. Jonathan asked, So wait, are you saying the fact that we suffer is actually proof that right now we aren't in a matrix-like simulation? Mr. June smiled. I never thought of it that way, but why not? You being miserable about everything we're talking about right now just might be the proof that what we are experiencing right now is real. Now hopefully, you and I aren't just part of a story being narrated by some guy. By the way, as a philosopher, I do feel the need to point out that the Matrix idea is in no way original. I did like the movie as a modern, high-tech take on an old concept. But the idea is found in numerous philosophical works, most famously from Plato's Allegory of the Cave to Robert Nozick's Experience Machine and Hilary Putnam's Brain in a Vat. I guess maybe the inability to rate philosophical work on Rotten Tomatoes keeps it from reaching higher popularity. But it does seem that we don't want our good life to just happen to us. You want to achieve it through your deliberations, reasoning, decisions, and actions. But I want you to really think about it. You'll never find yourself in a real-time, real-world Nozick's experience machine 
in some twisted dystopian world. In life, this comes in more subtle ways. You might even say you get plugged into one without even realizing it. Jonathan tried to connect what Mr. June just said with what he knew about Buddhism. I do often think about how I want someone to hand me the answers. But then I get caught thinking, if that happened, what would I do next? But I'm not entirely sure I understand what you're getting at, Mr. June. Mr. June answered, I think the biggest problem you're having right now is how to define desire. Desires are things we want, although we might not necessarily need them. Although your desires can be a trap, there's nothing wrong in longing to have a good life. It's the engine that keeps you going. Again, it's not what you desire, but how you approach that desire. Do you let it control you? Or do you use the desire to make yourself better and happier? But what if the issue you're having isn't what you want, but the subtle fear of losing the ground beneath your feet while attempting to attain what you desire? At the same time you claim you wouldn't want to plug into the experience machine, you also look at the pigeons and think about how lucky they are. No matter if you do this sarcastically or not, the fact is you're thinking it. The pigeons have mother nature to decide what's best for them. And who do you have, Jonathan? Jonathan looks surprised. Are you saying I'm subconsciously using my father's help as an excuse for not doing what I want? Mr. June replied calmly. I completely understand how hard it is to let go of something crucial when you convince yourself you can't handle it on your own. And we do feel safe when someone else is guiding us. But unlike pigeons, we constantly question the hand that feeds us. Not because the hand is necessarily bad, as you said. It just doesn't necessarily feel right when you have someone do the job for you. But it certainly seems easy. Jonathan felt attacked, and the urge to strike back came over him. But he kept his cool. He had a deadline approaching. And deep down, he knew he had no other avenues to go to for advice. And like it or not, Mr. June seemed to be giving it to him straight. Let's make it more clear by introducing another famous philosophical theory called hedonism. Mr. June said, breaking the stream of Jonathan's thoughts. Wait, isn't hedonism the term we use to describe people who give themselves completely over to material desires? People who get, say, irresponsibly drunk without even thinking about anything? Though, as you said, Sartre himself was a drunk and a pill popper who thought crabs were chasing him, so what do I know? Mr. June laughed. You do know that a drunk is also not automatically an idiot, right? In fact, Sartre thought he would die young, so he consumed alcohol and barbiturates so he could work incredibly long hours every day to make sure he produced as many of his ideas as possible before he died. And he was right, he did die young, although I guess we'll never know if it was because of his lifestyle. Mr. June smiled and brought them back to the point. But history wasn't very kind to the term hedonism as it got twisted through time. Today, when someone mentions hedonism, the first thing that comes to mind is exactly what you've said. But in the same way we misinterpret desires, we misinterpret hedonism as well. 
According to hedonists, your pleasurable experiences are essentially all that matters. Hedonism is one of the most widely recognized and accepted theories of well-being, according to which our pleasure is the only intrinsically valuable thing. But to philosophers like Epicurus, pleasure wasn't just another word for sex. And no, his work was not the foundational content for the recipe website. You'd be shocked to know how many students ask. That said, I do believe the site named themselves after him as a sort of metaphor for their business. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher who thought pleasure was the state of complete happiness and tranquility where pain is completely absent. Epicurus believed you have two choices. You can strive to fulfill the desire or you can try to eliminate desire. For the most part, Epicurus advocated the second strategy. To him, you should seek out modesty and pleasures that are sustainable. And he primarily advocated for mental pleasures like reading, writing, the arts, and discussions like the one we're having right now. And if he were alive today, he might actually use the recipe website named in the honor of his philosophy, but likely only to make modest and simplistic dishes. So I suppose there is a connection after all. Jonathan asked, so something like Buddhism? Mr. June replied with a laugh. Yes, Buddhists also prefer to have modest and simplistic dishes. Jonathan answered a bit irritated. I'm not talking about diets. I'm talking about the similarities between Buddhism and Epicureanism. Mr. June laughed again. Okay, Jonathan, I can see this business with your father must be really bothering you. Let's move on. What's more interesting here is where does this leave us? It leaves us with the important point that in choosing how to live, there is something over and above our experiences. Think about it, Jonathan. Were you the one who decided which experiences are good and which are bad? Were you the one who said things like sex are pleasures while someone punching you in the stomach is pain? We want to make the right choice autonomously, but what is a right choice? It can't just mean to do something you want to do. In that case, violent collisions of millions of people who are simultaneously doing the right thing would become a social norm. Jonathan thought about it for a second and answered with disappointment. So basically we've come back to that point where you're telling me there's nothing we can do. I almost feel like I'm getting less than the usual half answers. Mr. June answered, not shaken by the clear disappointment in Jonathan's voice. Yes, some elements are out of our control. What did you think, Jonathan, that all it takes to be happy is to find some well-hidden magic key? Okay, well, you didn't love the thought experiment, so maybe some historical perspective on the root psychological drivers behind our evolution might give you some better questions. Tell me, Jonathan, have you ever heard of Jerry Fodor and his modularity of mind? Jonathan replied weakly with an exhausted sigh. I can't say that I have, Mr. June. Modularity of mind is a theory that our minds might have parts or modules that have specific functions given to them by biological evolution. 
It's one of the root theories foundational to the study of evolutionary psychology. Imagine evolution to be the programmer, and our mind is the software this great programmer is trying to create through algorithms. So evolution created a code that enables our mind to deal with a certain problem or task. Now, what do you think would happen if a certain problem disappeared or was changed, but the code for dealing with it stayed the same? What if, for example, millions of years ago, evolution inserted a code called fear into your mind to help us realize when there's potential trouble? Like, for example, when a saber-toothed tiger is trying to kill you. If it weren't for fear, our ancestors would just stand there and wait for the tiger to devour them. So, for us to survive, evolution created this code that we call fear. Let's jump back to today. We still have that fear code in our mind. Although, as far as I can tell, there are no tigers in your direct surrounding. Sure, you can say that some people will harm you, but that's the point. The problem has changed, but the algorithm fixing that problem stayed the same. It's been outdated. So there you are, Jonathan, a man with outdated code whose motives make him do things that are out of his control. Like an ant, you run up and down doing what you think you're supposed to be doing. The only difference is the ant can't have an existential crisis. I'm sorry to be the one breaking this to you, but just being at the top of the food chain doesn't make us like gods. Humans are tribal, biased, emotional, ego-driven characters whose actions are more often than not predetermined. And going back to Buddhism, the sooner you relinquish yourself from the secret desire to be a godlike creature, the better. Jonathan seemed disappointed again. I don't know, Mr. June. It's hard to think that everything in this life is out of our control or predetermined. Mr. June observed Jonathan's noticeable grief and replied, Well, as for free will, we'll have to table that topic for another day. But for now, recall I didn't say you're exactly like the ant. I said you're similar. Think about it. Doesn't the unique ability to be aware of how your actions are mostly predetermined make it possible for you to act on it? The ant isn't aware, but you are. Think of that movie Memento, where he loses all memory except short term. His life is a constant 15 seconds of living in the now. But even in that brief span, by tattooing something on his arms in a prominent place, he's able to somewhat steer his subconscious mind. The ant can't do that, but you can. Perhaps people with tattoos are more clever than I realized. I didn't think of them as a tool for seeding my consciousness with ideas, Jonathan said, not entirely joking. Mr. June laughed, perhaps, but back to the modularity of mind concept. If you know there's an outdated code somewhere in your mind, doesn't that only make it easier for you to fix it or at least work around it? Jonathan thought about it. Well, yeah, sure. If my computer breaks down, it isn't until I find the cause of the problem that I can fix it. Yes, Jonathan. Then all you need 
is the knowledge of fixing the broken part, and maybe a little courage. The same goes for who you are. These mixed feelings you're having right now are nothing more than another code in your mind telling you that something isn't right. Next, you need to locate the source of the problem. After that, all you need is the knowledge of fixing it, which you can find in many philosophy and psychology books, and more importantly, life itself. But it will take practice. The mind has centuries of evolutionary and societal baggage. Unlearning can be much more intense work than learning itself. Your mind at the same time is and isn't a brain in a vat type of scenario. Although there are codes predetermined for you by evolution, you can still break those codes. There's absolutely no way you can turn something that's considered bad into good or vice versa, but you can choose how you will perceive those events. Utilitarians like Jeremy Bentham, J.S. Mill, and more recently, Peter Singer, believe you should make your choices so as to maximize the pleasure and minimize the suffering of all of those who are affected by your actions. And notice that they say maximize or minimize. They never say you can remove the suffering and have 100% pleasure. A single action can bring joy to person A and suffering to person B. It's delusional to think you can make everyone happy. You can't. The best thing you can do is simply try to maximize the pleasure and minimize the pain. Jonathan seemed to be even more confused. You're saying there will be situations where for me to be happy, it will come at someone else's expense? But what's the point then if we can't all be satisfied? If someone needs to suffer for another person to be happy? Mr. June looked at him with calm eyes. Jonathan, have you ever noticed your habit of looking at everything as either black or white? It's known as polarized thinking, but it's also similar to the zero-sum bias. You believe life is like a zero-sum game, where one gains only at the expense of another. More so, you're doing it to yourself. You seem to believe that to gain happiness, it must be at the cost of sadness and the other way around. It's as if you're trying to remove one side of the coin, but you can't remove one side of a coin without obliterating the entire coin altogether, can you, Jonathan? And remember, you are that coin. You'll often fail, but as we discussed about Sartre's views, you have a practical debt you owe to the world to be your highest self. Sartre isn't asking you to be perfect, Jonathan. Sartre is asking you to try and be the best person you can be without fear. And finally, Jonathan, the attempts to maximize the pleasures and minimize the sufferings only bring more suffering into your life. That's the unattainable happiness that Buddhism talks about. You can never achieve pleasure without suffering because without suffering, there couldn't possibly be pleasure. If you're not aware of there being an up, how can you be aware of there being a down? Becoming aware of one extreme automatically makes you aware of the other. The same is with pleasure and suffering. The godly happiness where you are in some garden where only good things happen 
isn't possible. But human happiness is. That is, the happiness of becoming your highest self, Jonathan. Jonathan's intuition was right. With each of the answers Mr. June gave him, he just developed more questions. So I should tell my father I'm not agreeing to his terms, and I should do what I feel is right no matter what? Mr. June replied, you are the only one who needs to make that decision. Actually, let me rephrase it, Jonathan. You are the only one who can make it. Mr. June said it was time for him to go, and thus Jonathan went back home thinking about everything. More half answers to double the questions. That thought normally would have made him laugh, but right now his brain hurt. Mr. June's not-so-subtle poke at Jonathan's fear about being dependent on his father made it even worse. But as always, deep inside, an annoying intuition reminded Jonathan that Mr. June was right. Jonathan was swimming in the comfortable waters of his father having his back. Now, the same person that put him into this experience machine wanted to pull him out, and Jonathan he was struggling to tread water in this pool and find happiness in simply not sinking like a stone. When he got home, he felt exhausted, so he flopped into his chair and turned on the TV. Jonathan felt like he'd come home after climbing the highest mountain and all of his energy had been zapped out by the adventure. It was as if his battery was running on low and it was about to shut down. He was existentially confused. He was existentially tired. But yet, somehow, he also felt something he could only describe as exhilaration. An interview show was on TV, featuring some academic explaining his motivation for doing a head transplant on himself. Jonathan listened to him, explaining some reasoning for this science fiction-sounding operation which ended with him saying that the head transplant would enable him to become his highest self. A guy who wants to do a head transplant to become his highest self? What is this lunatic talking about? And wait, wasn't this what I just talked about with Mr. June? And isn't transplanting a head onto another body kind of the same thing as putting a brain into a vat? Jonathan couldn't help but think his mind was playing tricks on him. It was a bit too big of a coincidence for something like this to show up on TV just moments after he was talking about it. He looked around the room and even thought to pinch himself absentmindedly, a trick he'd read about lucid dreamers doing as a test to figure out if they were in a dream or not. If things weren't so bizarre and stressful at the moment, he'd normally have laughed out loud at having just done that. And then his phone rang. Jonathan knew who it was. It was the operator of Jonathan's personal experience machine telling him his time was over if he didn't agree to the new terms of use. His bell was tolling. Jonathan's head felt fuzzy. The TV was shouting and the phone was still ringing. Buzzing, shouting, ringing. Fear, uncertainty, safety. Buzzing, shouting, ringing. Combined with the stress he felt, 
the cacophony of sounds made his senses feel as if they were overloading his mind. He felt as if someone was pulling his brain out of his skull. The room started turning as if someone had turned on a vertigo effect to full tilt. Jonathan dozed off, or at least he felt like he dozed off. He was still in his room, but everything felt different. It was like he was having deja vu and vuja day at the same time. Like he'd already been in this exact situation, but in the next moment, he felt like he'd never been here before. It was as if he was swimming in the space between reality and a dream, and he couldn't do anything about it. Jonathan felt the fear algorithm kicking in again as he thought to himself, is this some kind of glitch in the matrix? Things started to move slower, like a computer affected by a virus dragging the system down. No, it can't be possible. Could this mean I'm a brain in a vat? Is it possible this body I have is just code while my real self is swimming in a jar in some laboratory? Am I going crazy? The ultimatum from his father, and whether or not he'd even taken the call, didn't even register in his thoughts. The TV suddenly shut down as Jonathan continued to try and swim against the stream, or float like dust in the wind. If he'd been more aware, he might have gotten that damned Kansas song stuck back in his head again. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.